Well, God's people, let's turn in God's Word to Matthew's Gospel and chapter 8. Matthew's Gospel and chapter 8. And we'll be reading verses 18 through 22. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. Thankful being in the Gospel that it is often, and there's many sermons that have led up to this point, but also here where it will often and always be really good for preparing our hearts to worship the Lord and to celebrate the Lord's Supper together next Lord's Day. And here is no different, for here we are challenged on what it means to follow Jesus. There is certain meaning that following Jesus, He reveals to us that we often don't consider that we need to consider. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. And before we read God's Word, let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're thankful once again that You are the God who speaks to us, revealing Yourself to us, condescending unto us that we would that we might understand who You are. And we pray that You would grant us to understand who You are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and especially today, Your Son, and following Him, and what that means. We pray that You would teach us Your ways that are often not our ways, and the ways of the world. And so... Turn our hearts to You. Sanctify us. Cleanse us of all of our sins in the truth. And where do we go? But we know that Your Word is truth. And so we go to the Word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. These are God's words. Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about Him, He gave commandment to depart unto the other side. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. Those are God's words. Friends, remember the context of the passage before us this morning If you remember, the context is the sufferings of Christ. So we read the very last verse, we read last Lord's Day in verse 17. Uh, Going back to Isaiah 53, reminding us that these healing miracles that He has performed are not just that He physically heals by His great power and His Word people, and He can absolutely and does do that, but that it also was instruction about our souls, that our souls need to be cleansed of the leprosy in them and the palsy in them. Right? 
And so here, as we've learned about those healing miracles and the physical healing, focusing our thoughts also on the spiritual healing that alone Jesus Christ can do, The suffering servant in Isaiah 53. He suffered for our sakes. He took on our infirmities. He bore our sicknesses that we would be healed in Him. What a great Savior that we have in Jesus Christ. And now we come to the occasion where again, great multitudes, verse 18, great multitudes were following Jesus a separate day than before. A separate day, and yet connected still there to Christ's sufferings in the verse 17 before it. And so today we're going to hear of His followers' sufferings. Those who follow Jesus Christ suffer. And that's what He's instructing here in these verses before us. Any who turn to Christ in faith are not immune immune to sufferings in this world. Though their sufferings are not atoning like Christ, they are not substitutionary like Christ's sufferings, they do not bear the guilt of believers like Christ's do, nor the wrath of God like Jesus Christ. And yet those who are in union with Jesus Christ will suffer. Only Christ's sufferings bear the guilt and the sin and the wrath of God on the cross. In Christ's kingdom, citizens of His kingdom suffer. Even in the spreading, as they go forth, they spread the gospel of the kingdom. They suffer. Colossians 1. It says, "...who now rejoice in My sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind in the, of the afflictions of Christ in My flesh." For His body's sake, for the sake of Christ, which is the church, whereof, or for the church's sake, which is the church whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation, the timing of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. So friends, the application of redemption for which Christ suffered and died for His people, He uses the testimony of the people of God and the preaching of the ministers of the Gospel particularly to hold forth the truth of God. And those people suffer who hold forth the truth. As He causes the means of that truth to be the ingathering of others, of God's elect, to come into the kingdom. Even through the weak instruments He uses, all of us, and especially gospel ministers, and their suffering. 2 Timothy 2 says, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, or for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. For the sake of the elect, not the believers he's saying, but for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation which is in Christ Jesus 
and have that eternal glory with Him. He says, I endure all things. And he's there writing that letter. It's the very last letter he ever wrote, sitting there in prison in Rome, suffering. I endure all things for that. Being an instrument used by the Lord for the salvation of the elect, he says, entails suffering. Philippians 3, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, that I might know the fellowship of His sufferings. And so what Jesus teaches here is nothing different than what Paul teaches. That suffering is what is normal, a normal part of the life of the people of God, or the lives of the people of God. Suffering is a means of sanctification as well. Praise God. He gives us suffering that we would be sanctified and cleansed of our sin. That we would see how much we need Him all the more. And therefore, it is part of salvation unto eternal life. Not justification. It doesn't make us right. Only justification is by faith alone, right? But part of our salvation, the big picture, our sanctification, suffering is a part of that unto eternal life. Christ, on the earth, sinless, died for our sin. The people of God must die to sin through suffering and much tribulation to enter the kingdom of God. The first point this morning, the disciples' sufferings. The disciples' sufferings. The disciple, a disciple is one who is a, who's being taught, learn. You learn. You're learning something, and that is all of us in the church. We are all disciples of Jesus Christ if we are in the church. Verse 18 sets the context there. The great multitudes are around Him. And he, commanded that, uh, he commanded them to go to the other side. Go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee because there were great multitudes following Him. And this further solidifies that many were coming to Christ and His ordinances. Even we can apply to worship in the church today out of curiosity. And we've learned that, and throughout the Gospels we learn. That's why many of the people, the great multitudes, were coming unto Christ. Because of the curiosity of who Jesus was, more than because He is the Messiah. And so rather, coming here unto Him, the multitudes coming out of curiosity, rather than to the desire to profit from Him. But Christ is not concerned about great crowds, is He? He's not at all. Doesn't care if there are a lot of people or not. He would rather depart away, like he says here in verse 18, depart away from the multitudes than to allow that folly of curiosity about him to continue. He doesn't care for worldly cheers, but rather to be believed in and on and to be turned to for salvation. So he gives the commandment to go to the other side. And before they get into the ships, which is, you look at verse 23 and after, before they get into the ships, before he's leaving, there are people that come up to him and want to follow. 
They want to follow this one who speaks with great authority from God, who chapter five through seven, right, and who does and performs great miracles of healing, chapter seven, chapter eight. But you remember what was just said at the end of chapter seven. For he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. And here the scribe comes. The scribes in the Gospels, uh, we should already know, were largely enemies of Christ, hated Him, they wanted or will want shortly to put Him to death in a matter of a couple years. right? And yet, here comes one scribe. Verse 19, and says, And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to put to lay his head. We're going to look at that phrase, the Son of Man, first. But as we look at this, remember, no matter what Jesus is saying here, He's not saying the scribe is not truly desiring to follow Him rightly. He's not saying that. He's not saying that about the next man either who comes to Him, one of His disciples, and says, let me go bury my father. Wait and let me go bury my father. He's not saying He's not a Christian or a Christian. He's not saying anything about the state of His heart or soul. He's teaching us a lesson as He was teaching them a lesson. But here we're introduced to the term Son of Man. It's the first time in Matthew's Gospel, the New Testament, that we learn and hear that phrase, the Son of Man. So who is Jesus speaking about? He's speaking about, we know, Himself. We know that from reading the verse. Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. Right? The the scribe comes, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And then he speaks about himself. The Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. Acts chapter 7, Stephen, giving his defense, he speaks of Christ. And said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Revelation 1, And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt with with paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. Revelation 14, I looked and behold a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And yet, those verses after this time of the Gospels, yet most of the uses of the Son of Man are found in the Gospels, not in Acts, not in Revelation, but in the Gospels, used by Christ Himself, about Himself in which He's claiming to be the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, from Daniel 7. From Daniel 7, who is the Christ, the Anointed One of God. Yet He exalts in 
that term, that phrase, son of man, that title, it exalts in Christ's humiliation. His humiliation as a man. And he's going to ask the question in Matthew 16 of his disciples, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? He tells us who the Son of Man is there very clearly. Who do men say that I, Christ is speaking, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Daniel 7. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him, and there was given Him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve Him or worship, the duty of worship Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. And we, just, we studied Daniel uh, several years ago now, and we know this is a passage that is declaring that the Son of Man is that Christ, the Messiah. And it's self-evident based on the descriptions of the Son of Man and what the other Scriptures say that we've read, and not all of them, but some of them, that this is about Christ. It's about Jesus Christ. And here He speaks, it speaks of His mediatorial kingship. In Daniel 7, as He governs all things according to the Lord's good pleasure and in the interest of the kingdom of grace which He builds up by His Holy Spirit. Christ, the Son of Man, governs all by the kingdom of His power and therefore does so in the interest of the love of His kingdom of grace, the church, right? And so builds His church in the midst of the earth. That's what He's doing here. And so the title that we find here in verse 20 is that title of the Messiah, the Christ. And so we need to consider Daniel 7 and the Son of Man's description as Messiah the Christ that lies behind Stephen's use of it in Acts 7, seeing Christ on the throne. Right? He sees Christ on the throne because why? He's the King over all. He's reigning. He's already ascended. He's seated on the throne. And in Revelation, the one who rides on the clouds of heaven... Because He governs all things. He's over all. And Jesus uses the title in reference to that which is the same described in Revelation Matthew 26. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes. That's the Jewish high priest at the time rent or tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. So Jesus speaks. He has, you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power afterward. He's speaking of whom? He's speaking of Himself, Jesus is. And the high priest knows it. The high priest knows He's speaking of Himself. He's saying, the priest is saying, Christ Jesus is speaking about the Messiah, but He's saying it about Himself. And so how did they respond? The unbelieving high priest knew that He was claiming to be the Son of God. And by claiming to be the Son of God, that He was claiming to be the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One of Daniel 7. 
And what did he say? In his unbelief, blasphemy. Blasphemy, because the Son of Man is who? It's God. Jesus in his earthly ministry uses this title, the Son of Man, in its in his earthly ministry as one having authority. Mark's gospel. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so Christ has full sovereign authority as King and ruler over all things for the sake of His church. He has full sovereign authority over the Sabbath day, the Lord's day. And yet Christ also uses this title to declare His real humanity and His humiliation and His exaltation. His humiliation and His exaltation. He says in verse 20, the Son of Man showing that He is fully and truly as we are human. But He's not just a man. But He is very distinct. He is the man. The Son of Man. And as the Son of Man, as the Messiah, He will be both humbled and exalted. Matthew 12. His humility. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The Messiah there, that He would be buried and rise again. That's part of His being humble. His humiliation. And then His rising from the dead is exaltation. Matthew 17, But I say unto you, that Elias has come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Part of the humiliation of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is that He would suffer. That's what He's pointing to in our passage. Matthew 26, The Son of Man goeth as it is written of Him. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Christ the Messiah is truly a man. He would suffer humiliation. He would be betrayed by one who was so His disciple for three years. It's part of His suffering. Though the same Son of Man, Daniel 7, is exalted. The exalted Messiah, the Prince, the King. Our mediatorial King. He... In His humiliation, becoming a man, taking on human flesh, suffering, dying, buried, but He would also be exalted, rising again from the dead. And so, kids, what do we remember in the catechism of Christ's humiliation? Christ's humiliation consisted in His being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the curse of death of the cross, and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. But so too is exaltation. What is wherein consists consisted Christ's exaltation. Christ's exaltation consisted in his rising again from the dead on the third day, and ascending up into heaven, and sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. Matthew 17, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. 
Matthew 16, the chapter before that, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He shall reward every man according to His works. Matthew 24, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. In the next chapter, Matthew 25, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. It's the Son of Man who took on human flesh, becoming a man in His humiliation, would suffer as the Christ, as God. The Christ, you mean the Christ of God, not as God, in His humiliation, and who would be exalted and would reign as King and come again with great power and glory. And His humiliation is exaltation. And so this title indicates His manhood, indicates His being the Christ, the Messiah, it indicates His sufferings, His death, and His resurrection, and His exaltation and glory. And in this way, this title declares that Jesus is the Savior of the world. For He is not the Christ of the Jews only, but He is the Savior of the whole world, saving sinners of all nations of the earth. John's Gospel, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus as the Son of Man in our passage, that He is the Christ, and He is to be followed as the Christ. But as a man, there was suffering, there was humiliation, and that's what our passage is all about. What did Jesus say to the scribe who wanted to follow Jesus whithersoever, that's wherever you go? What did Jesus say to him that wanted to follow Jesus in that way? Jesus says, Do you understand where I'm going? Do you understand what I'm doing? What it will require you to follow me. To you, friends, Jesus is asking the same. Do you understand who I am and what will be required of you if you follow me and believe on me and be called a Christian? Do you really want to follow me? After you find out what it means to follow me. Because this is where I'm going, Mr. Scribe. You want to follow me without any condition, whithersoever thou goest. You said, Jesus, you are worth following. He is worth following whithersoever he goest, right? He is worthy of that. Even when I don't know where you're going. Lord Jesus, it's worth following you. And to us, this is where he's gone. Verse 20. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Jesus needed a place to sleep. You think of all the foxes. They have their holes, they sleep. That's where they sleep. They have their beds, right? That's their homes. The birds, all they have, their nests. All of them have nests. And so they sleep. But the Son of Man, the Messiah, has no place. No place to lay His head, no place to sleep. The foxes, the birds, have that which Christ, the Messiah, the Son of Man, has had not. 
one aspect of his suffering. The foxes, the birds have those things that the Son of Man has not. Was the scribe ready to follow in that? He's certainly worth following in that suffering. Are you, friends, ready to follow Christ in His sufferings? No place to lay His head. Why? It was denied Him as part of His humiliation for our sakes. Why? Because He's the Son of Man who must suffer and die and rise again. He would suffer so much more, even to the point of death. And death on the cross, right? In Christ's public ministry, as you can see in verse 18, He went from place to place and men rejected Him over and over and over again. He was rejected in Judah, John 5. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill Him because He not only had broken the Sabbath, which He didn't, but said also that God was His Father, making Himself equal with God. Galilee had cast Him out. John 6, from that time many of His disciples went back and walked no more with Him. That was in Galilee. The country of Gergesenes begs Him to leave their district, their country. Look down there in our passage, verse 34. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw Him, they besought Him that He would depart out of their coast. They didn't want Him there, causing too much trouble. Samaria, even Samaria refuses lodging to him. Luke 9, and they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Earth, earth would not have him, friends. Matthew 27, and the governor said, Why, what evil hath he done? Alright, that was Pontius Pilate. What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. Or, as we often hear in other Gospels, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! They're calling out. The whole earth didn't want Him. And heaven forsook Him. Matthew 27. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is to say, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? Christ, the Son of Man, despised, rejected of men to the point He would cry out. They would cry out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And they're dying on the cross in full humiliation for our sakes, for His love for us, Christians. The full unmitigated wrath of God poured out upon Him to where He cried out concerning the Lord forsaking Him and His human nature. Did the scribe really know what he was saying? I will follow, follow you whithersoever thou goest. Do you understand what he was saying? Do you, friends, when you say, I will follow Christ in faith. I will follow Him wherever He goes. Do you know what it means to follow Christ? The vast majority of the church today needs to hear this message. The message from Messiah Jesus Christ about what it means to follow Him. Because first off, the church, that's all of us, that's all of you, the church needs to hear that Christ the Messiah, the Son of Man, must be followed. He must be followed for salvation, to have life. And we're going to see verse 22, Jesus' command, follow me, right? And the church today, generally speaking, is not following Christ. They're following 
their own desires and pleasures and wants of what they want Christ to be. The church today wants everything to be what? Happy? Entertainment driven? So everyone is pleased. And everything is dependent upon and revolves around is everybody happy? And are we growing in number? Right? Is our is the congregation, the church, growing? Is your church adding to its numbers? You know, one of the first questions as a pastor, and I know some of you have experienced this before as well, I, that I get when I meet other pastors or other Christians, and I tell them I'm a pastor, and I go, you know, I'm a pastor of this church. And the first question is they ask, how many members do you have? Who cares? doesn't matter if there's three Amen. or a thousand. doesn't matter. They want to know... Then that question they're asking, are you successful? Yeah. Is the church healthy? But they're asking the question, are you successful, the church successful, and is the church healthy with different weights and measures? The weights and measures of the world. And not of Jesus Christ. The joy and the happiness and the pleasure is in following Christ. And there is much on this earth in Christ. The great majority, the vast majority of joy and happiness and pleasure will be in the forevermore. And the eternity with Christ forever. Our hope lies there. And given what we know, this scribe was following Christ... We don't know why. We don't have the backstory. We don't know if he has a, a truly desirous heart for Christ Himself or for the miracles. We don't know. Jesus is not answering that. But He is answering, if you want to follow Me, this is what it means. It means suffering. There are many people who want to follow a movement, right? There's many Jews there at the time in the great multitudes who want to, to follow this new movement. The miracles. They want to go after Him. And He goes to the other side. They're going to be there eventually. They will find Him again. And that's much like today. We find those Jews, they would have been right there with the new movement, the early 2000s emerging church movement. Don't look it up. It's a waste of your time. The emerging church movement. They would have been there. The Mars Hill movement. They would have been there today. G3, Together for the Gospel, Sovereign Grace Ministries thing. Those movements. Even the movements of the, the heretics. Hillsong, Elevation, and Bethel. That's happened today, right? They'd be all that. They, all those Jews, a lot of the Jews would be there if they were here today. But what a killjoy Christ the Messiah is to this world in the eyes of the world. His comments are somewhat negative, aren't they? How is this a helpful response to this man to describe? Some might think it's very discouraging to the man. You know, when we evangelize friends, we testify the gospel. There's others who hear 
how we testify the gospel when we're doing it rightly. We're telling people the word of God that they're a sinner. They need they need their the Savior Jesus Christ. And the only way to be saved from eternal damnation and have everlasting life, which is freely offered, is to turn on the Christ. Right? Just as the Word of God says. And some people hear that. You're telling people God's Word and the Gospel and their, of their sin and their need of Christ. So how many times perhaps you have experienced, I have experienced, those in the church discouraged that I would do it that way. Like... Christ and the apostles and the disciples do. And that you would do so because it isn't the most joyful message to tell someone they're a sinner. And that they need to be saved from something. And they can't do it themselves. And they need Christ. Well, if we don't have that message, it's not the gospel at all. No joyful message at all that you can be saved from your sin, they say. Well, if you can't say that, then there's no joy. There's no possibility of true joy, right? Ecclesiastes. The truth of the Christian life, friends, dissuades false professors, not real ones. The truth of the gospel puts off false disciples and those whose hearts are hardened. And sadly, they don't see those. They don't see those churches of our modern day stocking up the churches with false professors and disciples, holding back the truth of the Christian life and following Christ. They're holding back. They're veiling the truth and all the hardships and the difficulties and the sufferings that true followers of Christ experience. Why? Keep people in the dark about what God reveals in His Word. He's gracious, isn't He? And merciful to reveal these things so that we are not left unprepared or surprised. But He reveals these things in His Word. True disciples, true believers will follow even through suffering because by faith they endure, seeing Him who endured the greatest suffering, who is invisible, manifested in the flesh, who suffered for their sakes to the greatest, even death, that they would, that they have been taken themselves from death to life, and how much more suffering could be worse? Nothing is worse than what Christ suffered in His humiliation, and not only do we see what He did, but we have Him as our God, and He's sitting on the throne, and He's pouring out His grace for His people. His covenant people. He did all that suffering so that we could have eternal life. And so by faith in Christ, He's saying here we must suffer well and patiently waiting for eternal joys and eternal hopes. Each true disciple reconciled to the fact that they are strangers here and home is with the Lord and glory. Their citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven and their enmity with the world, the world is hostile with us. Our afflictions are set on things above in heaven and not here. When we are afflicted, we set our thoughts upon Him. 
But a true believer, one who truly follows Christ, will not run or be discouraged from such truths found in His Word. And so we learn that easy believism, like which is popular in the church today, that doesn't reveal that following Christ is difficult and there's suffering and tribulations. And if you're an heir, you'll be persecuted. Romans 8, right? That must be... Easy believism must be preached against. And true and faithful churches must preach the Gospel and what is required of each sinner to be saved without holding back any of God's Word. But more than that, true and faithful churches must preach what is involved in following Christ. And this is what we learn here in following Christ. What is the Great Commission? Friends, was it to manufacture professions? It is not. But in all nations to make disciples, baptizing them, which ministers of the Gospel do, and teaching them all of God's commands. Not holding back anything. All of it being taught. All the Word taught to the people of God. The church and the Great Commission is not about producing short-term bodies with dead souls and seats, but rather calling dead souls to life in Christ alone and long-term commitments to the King, that is, eternal commitments to the King, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, in profession and life. And so then what a a falsehood is that the health and wealth false teachers preach, right? That if you have good enough faith, a great enough faith, everything will go well for you. Or in evangelicalism, if you believe the gospel, everything will be trouble-free. No, it won't, Christ says. Not in this life, it means suffering. Later on, He's going to make it clear that each one must take up His cross and follow Christ. Following Christ, friends, will increase your troubles. Those troubles will be handled with great comfort, which you didn't have before. But there will be more troubles from the world, from different places. Acts 14 Confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean we hold back all the benefits in this world of following Christ, which are amazing, great in number on this earth. There are. But we don't hold back the tribulations and sufferings either from hearing them. He doesn't do that with us. Today, of course, you need to turn from your sins... Believe on Christ for salvation. But you need to know, if you do that, that following Christ is not easy. And following Christ means you'll have troubles and tribulations and you will suffer. And if you're faithful to Christ, you'll be persecuted. But believe on Christ... 
Faith, put your faith in His sufferings for you. Faith in His death and humiliation for you. Because it says, right, for ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that ye through His poverty might be rich. And you own Christ as your King, our Lord, who has every right and privilege to command you and to, to what to believe and how to live for His sake and how gracious He is to say, as you live for Me and as you follow Me, you will suffer. I praise God He is our strength and our rock, a God who ever liveth. Does Christ have the authority to command you to tell you how to live on the Lord's Day? With your family, in the church, at work, in relationships, does He? Here He tells us of the disciples' sufferings. And if you follow Him, you are His disciple. The second point this morning is the disciples' priorities. The disciples' priorities. Verse 21. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. We know from this that this man, this disciple's father, was not dead yet. If he were, if his father was dead, then he certainly would not be there right then, would he? But this is most likely a father who was... Older, almost near death, or dying. And his disciples heard the king's call. The Lord Jesus Christ has called to all his disciples, to all, follow me. And the man says, Jesus, hold on a few days, a few years, whatever it might be, until my father dies that I might bury him. And then, then I will follow you. Here is the King, the Messiah, Jehovah, speaking, doing these things before His eyes, the miracles of healing, speaking with great authority. And you have the nerve, disciple, to say, wait until I can bury my father, and then I will come. No, it cannot be that way. Friends, we often do this, don't we? As a pastor... And as part of the session, the session here, we often see this as it has to do in application to excuses of why you are not in the presence of Christ on the Lord's day in worship. A few times I've had members come up to me, or they don't come up to me. Most of you know if you're not here, I try to contact you and ask, is everything okay? Are you sick? You know, something going on. And they say, Pastor... What do you think my family uh, has scheduled the funeral of my relative, my parent, my grandparent for the Lord's Day? What do I do? And I say to them, you already know what I'm going to say to you. Because we've gone over it before. You already know what I'm going to say to you. What has Christ commanded? He's commanded the Lord's Day, the Sabbath day, to be holy. Ought not to marry on this day. Ought not to bury the dead on this day. Or go to funerals on this day. Why? Because we must be in worship. 
The whole day is to be focused on the Lord, not anything to do on this earth, except by what's necessary. By good and necessary consequence. And that's not necessary on this day. You can do it on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, can't you? We have many days to do this. The Lord graciously gives us to do these things. Mary and funerals. And other things. The King commandment commands us. Well, you say, I wasn't in worship. My parents were in town. My family was in town. So, do they not know that you're a Christian? Do they not know that you have convictions about following Christ and what that means? That you believe on Christ, that He's your King, and you follow Him whithersoever He goes. Or maybe that's not you. But I was tired. You might say, that's why I wasn't at work. I was tired. On this earth, Christ didn't even have a pillow to lay His head. And you have so much more than that, praise God. But you can't come to worship because you're tired when King Jesus commanded you, forsake not the gathering in of my people on the Lord's day. Well, my family had to get together and is not your eternal family gathered according to King Jesus' commandment to worship Him? And, and can't you communicate that to your earthly family on the Lord's day? I'm going to be in worship. If you don't, don't schedule things that day. Mom, Dad, don't schedule things on that day. Grandparents, don't schedule things on that day. If you want me to be there, and I want to be there, don't schedule things on that day because I'm going to be committed to Christ. I'm following Him. And you might think, well, that's mean. No, it's not. If you communicated that to your parents, and they think that's mean and offensive, they're the ones who's really mean, right? They're trying to take away from you the life-giving Word to hear it and to be with God's people that you will be with forever. So what is your priority, friends? Is it following Christ? Or is it following family on earth? And other things in this world, following those things? Following your body? Tired? Christ says, follow me. Follow me. Follow the King. Following Him is more important than following your earthly family. And the application is general here, friends. Matthew's Gospel, but we receive a little bit more information in Luke's Gospel. In Luke's Gospel, this very same, or the same uh, account there, we are given more information that this disciple is one who's called to be a minister of the Gospel. That doesn't take away the application that was already given because Christ's application here is general. But in Luke's Gospels, more specific, Luke 9 says, And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead. But go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And so the man's called to preach the Gospel and yet wants to wait for his aged father to die so that he could bury him and then come, he'll come and preach. 
But why does Christ say then, follow me and let the dead bury their dead? Christ is saying, come and submit to me. Come and submit to me as the king who has absolute authority over all things. Because I'm the Messiah. I'm the God-man. And in the kingdom of God, He's the king. There is a work to be done. There is a work by gospel ministers to be done and there's only so much time to do it for each minister so-called. And all citizens of His kingdom, for their sakes, this work must be done. And we must obey the king. And those necessary things concerning this present world, like something very necessary, the burial of your parents, your your father who died. Jesus says non-Christian, unbelievers can do that. Other family members can do that. If necessary. That's not saying that the church is quiet and pays no attention to physical need, the need for burial, and that's important. We should bury... Our family members? What Christ is saying is that only believers, only God's people, and certain people within God's people, men, and certain people among men are called to preach the gospel. There's none in the world like that. And there are other duties that children and wives and and everybody in the church has. They're called to that only you can do. And Christ is saying only believers are rightly called to preach the gospel. And so the duty set before this man to preach, he must do it and not wait around, but do it now. The work of the kingdom must be done now. You go back and how your families influence you and what you do on the Lord's Day and worship and other things throughout the week, they don't understand. Your family might not understand, friends. They don't grasp the fact of the kingdom of God. They don't understand what it is, how it operates, who is the king, etc. Nor what your calling is in His kingdom. The souls of men, Jesus is saying to this Disciple was supposed to preach the gospel. The souls of men, that's what takes priority. The souls, your souls, are what takes priority. Your souls and bodies, we could even say, to be here and worship. The world, unbelievers, can care for the physical needs of other people, if necessary. But there's only one called people on the earth who can do these things. And so this is your duty, first and foremost. In my kingdom. And often for us, it's the opposite. Our bodies are made the priority. The physical needs someone has, which shouldn't be swept under the rug. It shouldn't, but the souls of men take priority, Jesus says. While bodies are important. The world does not attend to the true needs of the souls of men. The world, unbelievers will care for physical needs of men, don't they? They do. The unbelieving can have natural affections for men and their physical needs, but they will not have a desire for the conversion of sinners. Never. And bear testimony of the gospel. That will never happen. And yet, we're all called to do that. Even a 
priority of all Christian disciples, the spread of the gospel for the sake of the salvation of the souls of all the elect. You see, as long as there is not sinful neglect, the priority, friends, must be the preaching of the gospel, worship, and our application in hearing the gospel preached. And what does the Lord Jesus Christ do who is King? In His absolute authority, He tells us what to do. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. Christ calls you today to follow Him, turning from your sin, believing on Him for salvation, even in His sufferings, in His death, in His resurrection, His ascension, His now being enthroned as the King. But note, remember, following Christ comes with a cost. The cost of suffering. There's a cross. There's afflictions. There are sacrifices you will need to make. There are tribulations by which you enter into the kingdom of God. And as citizens of His kingdom, the king communicates the priority of His kingdom is the gospel proclaimed and the gospel heard. The gospel proclaimed and the gospel heard. That requires you to hear it and testify of it and believe it and obey Christ the King, the Son of Man, the Messiah who has come and suffered, died, was buried, and rose from the dead. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that You would make us godly and righteous disciples who follow You in suffering. And in our suffering, Father, we ask that You would cause us to be strengthened by You to suffer well. Be persecuted for righteousness' sake and not for our unrighteousness. That we would love you, that we would bear testimony of you to our neighbors, our co-workers, and all we come in contact with for the sake of the kingdom. And that we would put off the things of the world in every case where you call us to follow you in particular instances. And you call us to follow you now in everything. And so we pray in everything you would cause us body and soul to follow you. That we would follow you whithersoever you goeth, thou goest. And that your name would be praised. Grant us the grace to follow you, for we are unable of ourselves or incapable of ourselves. So grant us the grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.